rather than jumping straight into 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I wanted to take the opportunity this morning to preach something of a New Year's sermon. My goal is to help you and to encourage you and to give you a foundation and a little bit of motivation for pursuing the Lord in the coming year. This is the first sermon that our church has heard for this year. And so I want to try to use this occasion to to do that, to encourage you. My fear personally and pastorally is always stagnation. Hopefully that's all of your fear, stagnation. Uh, A mud puddle might have a little bit of life in it for a brief period of time, but it won't last long. A flowing river with life moving through it, that's, that's where fish thrive, not in a mud puddle. Stagnation breeds mosquitoes, and we all hate mosquitoes. So hopefully you fear stagnation in your Christian life. And that's my fear, that, that I would stagnate, that we as a church would, would stagnate. I fear that some of you might be starting out 2024 in the exact same place that you started 2023. While time has passed, you've not grown. You've not grown in love. You've not grown in joy. You've not grown in peace. You've not grown in patience over the last year. You've not grown in kindness or goodness in the last year. You've not grown in faithfulness or gentleness, meekness. You've you've no more self-control at the beginning of 2024 than you had in 2023. As a matter of fact, some of you might say, I feel like I've got less self-control now than I had before. I fear that though some of you might have read through the Bible last year, you weren't changed by it. It was a, a ritual. Here's the pattern. Here's the the texts that are laid out for me. I'll read through them. I'll get through the Bible in a year. Maybe you learn some new stuff. And we all we, we often say that every time I read through it, I see something new. Well, did it change you though? Did it make you any different? Of course you're going to see something new. That's You see something new every time you drive down the road. Did it change you that you saw something new? I fear that 2024 might yield the same tired excuses for disobedience and sin and laziness that we gave in 2023. That we go into this year struggling with the same sins we struggled with last year languishing in the same disciplines that we languished in last year, that our view of the world and the church is still through the same lenses of ignorance and unbelief and fear as they were last year. We don't want that. I don't want that for myself. I don't want that for you. And so the start of a new year is a good time, and the ancients would often use these seasons to evaluate the previous year and to establish plans and habits for the next year. The, the, the turning of a year was sort of the recalibration point where we could recalibrate ourselves spiritually. How did I do and what can I do better? Now, I want to do this, encourage you in this time, and it might sound strange, but I want to encourage you in this endeavor by using the Noahic covenant. The Noahic Covenant. Covenant theology is very significant for us, as, as it should be for all of those who call themselves Reformed. Very often, Reformed theology is considered synonymous with covenant theology. And for Reformed Baptists especially, it is our covenant theology that causes us to draw, come out of, or, or I should say historically, caused us to leave Paedo-Baptist uh, infant baptizing churches and start our own Baptist churches. It was our covenant theology and even more specifically our distinct view of covenants like the Noahic covenant. It's important for us. I do believe that a proper understanding of the Noahic covenant gives us sufficient biblical ground to see the turning of the calendar over to another year as an excellent time to reevaluate, regroup, and rethink our walk with the Lord for the coming year. The Noahic covenant is more than just, oh, there's a rainbow. 
take a picture. God will not flood the earth anymore. The text said, God said, when I see the rainbow, I will remember. That's a sign for him. It does encourage us, but it's more than that. It's going to stop raining eventually. It's more than that. So that's, that's the goal for this morning, if you're wondering why we've stepped out of line here. The title of this sermon, tongue-in-cheekly, nobody be offended. The title of this sermon is, Jesus is indeed the reason for the season. Jesus is indeed the reason for the season. What season, you ask? The new year. The new year. So let's turn our attention first to just consider the Noahic Covenant. And the plan here is not to survey every detail of this covenant. We just want to get a basic idea of what's happening. We want to answer the question from this section of Scripture, what is God doing in this covenant? Again, it has to be more than just, look at the rainbow. It's going to stop raining. There's more happening here. What is God doing? Now, that being said, every covenant is most easily understood as to its substance if we examine it according to four categories, four P's, the parties, the precepts, the promises, and the penalties. That's not original with me. I wish it were. It's not original with me. The four P's. We want to know the substance of a covenant. Our paedo-baptist brothers and sisters would say that the Noahic covenant and every covenant after the covenant God made with Adam, they are all the same in substance with the new covenant that is made in the blood of Christ. They're all the same covenant in substance, although different in administration. That they look differently outwardly, but really it's all the same thing. You you could probably follow then the logic. Infants were born into the covenant made with Moses. Therefore, infants are born into the covenant now. Therefore, we ought to baptize our infants. That's their reasoning. They would say the Noahic covenant... As to its substance, is the same as the new covenant. We would argue, as to its substance, it is exactly not the same. Its substance is completely different. Well, how do we know what the substance of a covenant is? Four P's. The parties. Who is involved in this covenant? The precepts. What are the stipulations or the commands that are given in this covenant? The promises. Of the covenant. What is held out for those who keep the covenant? And the penalties, what happens to covenant breakers? You can nail down those four things, you will understand pretty much every biblical covenant. You'll you'll see what God is doing. So that's what we want to do here. Examine the Noahic covenant using the four Ps. So number one, who are the parties involved in this covenant? Look at verses 8 through 10. Of Genesis 9. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. So here we see the parties are God, and then on the other side, Noah, Noah's sons, Noah's offspring, and then every living creature in the ark, every beast of the earth. So basically, God and everything that comes out of the ark. Look at verse 12 of Genesis 9. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me And you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. So again, we have God. Then we have Noah. We have every living creature that is with Noah, including all future generations that come after Noah. See that? Verse 17. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Again, we have God, and then we have every, every, everyone else summed up in all flesh on earth. So who are the parties of the Noahic covenant? On one side, God. 
On the other side, every living creature, human or animal, from Noah onward, everything. So you and I are in this covenant. We are in the Noahic covenant. Your dogs, your cats, your chickens, your goats, your cows, your rabbits are in this covenant. If you're driving to church and you see a rabbit run across the road, that's a member of the Noahic covenant. You see a deer run across the road or a deer out in the field, those are members of the Noahic covenant. Every living creature on the earth, every person on the face of the earth, and every animal at all times in all generations since the day that Noah came out of the ark are parties with God in the Noahic covenant. Secondly, the precepts. What are the precepts or what do we see God commanding? What rules are, are, are attendant with this covenant? Look at verses 1 to 3 of chapter 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all flesh of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. What is the command that God gives? Be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. And to sum up the rest, God says, And go ahead, feel free to use every plant and every animal in the world for food as you are being fruitful and multiplying. That's, that's what's going to sustain your life. The basic precept of the Noahic covenant is to proliferate or propagate human life and use the lesser creatures to that end. In other words, God says you've got to keep life going. That's the, that's the command, the, the, the precept. Now, you notice it's very similar to what God commanded Adam and Eve, except there's no repetition of the command to take dominion. After the fall, the dominion mandate, which Adam failed to accomplish, can only be taken up and accomplished by the last Adam. There has to be another Adam, Jesus Christ. And therefore, the parties of this covenant, which is not just mankind, but every living creature, all creatures on earth, are not commanded to participate in a dominion mandate. But some have referred to this as a cultural mandate. Live your life, reproduce life, sustain life, protect life, build and establish cultures in which life can flourish. We're never commanded to take dominion of anything. When you hear that language, just say, I know what they mean, but that's not what the text says. It's more of a cultural mandate. Again, if we are commanded to take dominion, and so also are your rabbits and your chickens and your dogs, because every living creature is a party of this covenant. What are the promises that God attaches to this covenant? Look at verse 11. I will establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Verse 15. I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. Now, both of these are negative. God promises that he will not do as he has just done. God will never again bring a flood to destroy the earth and all flesh on it. But what's the positive side of that? Remember, a promise is something you're going to do. What's the positive side of, I won't kill everything? Look at verse 22 of chapter 8. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Negatively, God will not destroy. Positively, what will He do in this covenant? God will uphold or maintain... The constant progressive movement of times and seasons. See that? Positively, I won't kill everything. Or negatively, I won't kill everything. Positively, I'll make sure everything keeps working so that everything can live. So day and night, 
It's going to continue. Seasons will continue. Years will come and years will go with the attendance of each season of planting and harvest, which implies your food and your labor. So you see the promise that God makes in this covenant coinciding with the command to the human race to be fruitful and multiply is that he will make sure that time marches on in order to facilitate that multiplication. The earth continues in perpetuity to be the place where man can do what God commanded. It would make no sense for God to say, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and then for God to wipe off everything every time they got halfway around the world. Wipe it off. Wipe it off. Wipe it off. No, he says, I'm not going to do that. I'm actually going to make sure the whole earth will be, be the place where you can be fruitful and multiply, where you can do what I have commanded you to do. But notice that he also says in verse 22 of chapter 8, while the earth remains. So we have that little hint here that, that the earth is not going to remain forever. This system is not eternal. Human flourishing is not an eternal endeavor. The marching on of time for the human race will come to an end at some point. But, this might sound redundant, but until that end comes, there will be no end. Nothing in all the universe can stop this world and time and humanity from continuing on just as it has been doing since the flood until the day God stops it. It's interesting in Second Peter when those who would scoff at the Christians would say, well, you, where is the sign of his coming? For things have been, been going on since the beginning of the world until now. What they were saying was God has kept his covenant from then until now. They were affirming God's covenant promise that he would do this. Nothing can stop this until the end of time. Time marches on. Until then, until the day God stops, years will come and years will go. Until the end, people will be born and people will die. God has promised it and he cannot be thwarted. Now that's comforting to me. What does this coming year hold? I don't know. Doesn't matter. Everything is going to continue on as it has always happened until the point when God says it's done. And at that point, we will forever be with him. It's comforting. This is his promise. What are the penalties that God threatens in this covenant? Look at verses 5 and 6 of chapter 9. He says, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. This is the penalty. And the penalty, as we would expect, is attached to the precept. If the precept is be fruitful and multiply, that is, produce life, promote life, protect life, preserve life, then the penalty comes to those who don't do that, who do the opposite, who take life. And those who take life are to be put to death. So those who make it their task to step in and prevent or halt or stop the production, promotion, protection, and preservation of life are to be punished all the way up to the point of death for taking a life. This is clearly in line with what Paul says in Romans 13 is the job of the civil magistrate. You've been given the sword to promote good, cultural flourishing, and to cut off, to kill the evildoer, those who take life. So that's the penalty. God says that we are to, to, to be champions of life, to cultivate life and flourishing in the world. And those who break that covenant, those who take life, must die. So to summarize this covenant, God, one party, comes to Noah and establishes a covenant with him, his sons, and every living creature. They're the parties, human or animal, in every generation. The precept, commanding them to be fruitful and multiply, to produce, promote, protect, and preserve the life of the human race, threatening the death penalty for all who obstruct this mandate by taking life, 
And God promises that he will make sure that time marches on in order to facilitate that multiplication of life until the end of the world and the consummation of all things. Now, there's more to the God's promise than just time, but for our consideration, I just want to think about that concept of time. God promises that he will make sure time marches on. We could go further and say negatively, the earth will not destroy everybody again. Rather, I will make sure the earth keeps everybody alive again in all of the various cultural facets that that takes place. But for this morning, God promises that time marches on. Now, so much for the covenant itself. What is the reason for this covenant? What is the reason for this? Why would God come to every living creature and say, I'm not going to kill you again. I'm going to make sure the earth keeps spinning, that time marches on, and I'm going to punish those who take life. Why would God do that? Well, to answer that question, let's take a step back and think about the context in which God makes this covenant. Namely, after he had just destroyed all life in the flood. Why did God send the flood? That seems a little counterintuitive, right? I'm going to send a flood, wipe out, wipe out all flesh, and then I'm going to come and make a covenant saying, I'm, I'm never again going to do that. You be fruitful and multiply. Well, God, why did you just kill everybody? Were we not being fruitful and multiplying? Well, they were. But why did God have to send the flood? Listen to Genesis 6, verses 5 to 7. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Why did God send the flood? Very simply, because the human race was evil. Evil. Very well, we say. So, so then why didn't God just kill every single person on the planet? Why did anyone live? Well, for starters, we read in Genesis 6-9 that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Well, God could not pour out the same punishment on a righteous man that he would pour out upon the wicked. Abraham would later say, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? The answer is, of course he will. He will only ever and always do what is just. So just as God would later spare Lot and his family from the destruction of Sodom, so here justice requires that God spare righteous Noah. Very well, we say. Noah's so righteous. Why didn't God just bring him on up to heaven with him? Why is he still here? To answer that, we have to go back even further. Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring... He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We know this is the first preaching of the gospel. The promise of the Messiah. It hasn't been fulfilled yet. Therefore, the objective ground of the grace that is being shown to Noah has not yet been established. The blood of Christ has not yet been shed. Though Noah was a righteous man in his generation, he was not a perfect man. He was a son of Adam, just like everybody who perished in the flood. And the only way that a sinful man can be spared at all is on the basis of the fulfillment of the promise of that Savior in Genesis 3.15. That Savior has to come. We could say this, the promised seed had not yet come, so Noah couldn't just be taken to heaven. The promised seed had not yet come, so Noah couldn't perish with the world. There must be a lineage from Eve, the woman, all the way to the Messiah. He's not yet here, so some must survive. As a matter of fact, look at what God says after the flood in verse 21. 
the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. What man is he referring to? There are only eight people on the planet. We say, why did God make this covenant commanding the, the multiplication of mankind and the promising of the time needed to do that? Well, what we see here, it's not because the flood changed man's heart. There we go. Everybody's dead. Man's better now. No, that didn't happen. After the flood, he describes the state of man's heart. It's not because the flood brought a uh, salvation or remedy for sin. The ark was not an eternal spiritual savior. It just got their bodies above the water so that the water didn't get in their lungs and they perished. So God was not saying after the flood, now finally man can flourish in righteousness because man is still unrighteous. Rather, God made this covenant with Noah precisely because those things had not been accomplished by the flood. Man's heart has not changed. Salvation has not been accomplished. There is no remedy for sin set forth yet. Those things had not been accomplished, but God had promised that they would be accomplished long ago. God made a promise which guaranteed the salvation of men the remedy to sin, and the change of our hearts. The problem is that promise hasn't been fulfilled yet. Now, what's required to fulfill this promise? Well, we have to have that promised seed and his people. We have to have a Savior, a people to be saved. Isaiah 49, 6 gives us insight into the eternal counsel of God and where the Father says to the Son, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. You've got to have a Savior for this plan, for this promise to be fulfilled. You have to have the, the people of that Savior who are going to be a people at the ends of the earth. And you have to have time. You have to have a world. You have to have culture. You have to have nations. And you have to have time for the earth to be filled with sinful men who need to be saved. Sinful men whose wickedness is curbed only slightly by the threat of death if they kill each other. That, that's why things are not as bad as they could be is because people are sort of afraid to kill their fellow man because they don't want to go to jail. They don't want to be put to death. And so they, they, that, that curbs crime. That curbs wickedness just enough to ensure that the world could continue to be populated. There must be time for this promised seed to be brought into the world. There must be time for his salvation to then extend to the ends of the earth. You see... A savior, a people, and time. What is the reason then for the Noahic covenant? The Noahic covenant ensures that the earth will be properly established as the stage upon which the redemption of sinners can take place. The Noahic covenant ensures that the earth will be properly established as the stage upon which the redemption of sinners can take place. What is this plan of redemption? We've already seen it in seed form from Genesis 3.15. Her offspring shall bruise your head. A male child born of a woman from the lineage of Eve will destroy the works of the devil and the devil himself. What the enemy had introduced into the world, the sin, separation from God, enmity with God, that will be cured through this coming seed. Yeah. That's the, the plan. Sins committed against God require the death penalty, and so he must die, this seed. Sinners must be brought back to God, so he must obtain a righteousness that's suitable for them. Enmity must be turned into sonship, and so sinners must be united to a son. And so, so it was that the Son of God would need to assume the nature of a man, the nature of the sinners, 
so that their fallen nature could be purified by being laid on the altar of his holy divinity. The God-man, Jesus of Nazareth, would be born under the law, keeping the law perfectly as a replacement for our lives of sin. He would then suffer the penalty for our sins in his body. He would die. Death being our greatest enemy, he would also render death powerless by rising from the dead. And this work being accomplished by Jesus Christ, now all who turn from their sin and trust in him for salvation receive all of the benefits, all of the promises, and all of the blessings won by him in his work. That's the plan of redemption. But we have to keep in mind the magnitude of this work. Just like the flood, it will be a global salvation. My salvation will reach to the end of the earth, God said. Again, this requires years and generations. This requires the ministry of the church where believers are gathered in and discipled and sent and other churches are planted and believers are gathered in and discipled and sent. It requires the work of the Spirit of Christ in the churches sanctifying and strengthening every individual Christian as well as every church and whole churches. All of that is a part of the plan of redemption. It's not just he'll live and he'll die and he'll rise from the dead and if you believe in your heart, you'll be saved and it's done. No, the ends of the earth is the, is the, the breadth of this plan. Paul says that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of, the, of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's, one, that's more than just a once-for-all saving act. Praise the Lord. This is an ongoing work of purification in each person and in each church, in all places, in all times. We must have time. Time must roll on. So again, we ask, what does this plan of redemption require? A Savior, a people, and time. The Savior must come from somewhere. People to be saved must come from somewhere. Therefore, God says to Noah, you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. And the work of bringing the Savior into the world, populating the world, spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth, and planting churches where the saints are purified and make ready, made ready for the return of Christ takes time, a long, long time. Christ is worthy of a lot of souls. So it's going to take a long time to populate the earth and fill the earth with this many souls that he has won for himself. And therefore God says to Noah, the waters shall never again flood become a flood to destroy all flesh. Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. In other words, God says, you make sure there are people. From these people will come the Savior. And I'll make sure that time endures day to day, month to month, year to year, in order to see that my son gets the reward for his labors. See it? Time. God's covenant with Noah guarantees the stable, consistent passing of time and the preservation of the human race on this planet in order to glorify Himself through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And that redemption includes the whole work of salvation in every Christian, in every church, in every place, in every generation. Now based on this truth, based on the Noahic covenant, how would you answer this question? It's a simple question. Why 2024? Why? Why have we entered into another year? Why has time continued for us? Why didn't it stop? For each of us individually or for us as a church, why has God brought us into another year? Why 
Did the clock turn over on December 31st? Click. And nothing changed. It just kept going. In other words, what is the reason for the season? Well, the only sufficient answer, biblically speaking, is in order to glorify God through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, you are in 2024 in order to glorify God through Christ. We as a church are in 2024 in order to glorify God through Christ. Now, I, I don't know if any of you are resolution people. I'm typically not. I probably should be. You probably should be. I'm typically not. But surely it's crossed our mind this past week what this new year might hold for us. It's at least passed through our mind we're in a new year. But I wonder if any of you have stopped to consider that you've been left to enjoy another year on this earth for the sole purpose of glorifying God. That this year is not for you, it's for Him. It's not just so that you can get older, taller, or skin, fatter, or skinnier, get more money, get more stuff, build, build more, build out this way and build out that way and build out that way and build out that way. That's not why we've got this year. That's not why we're left here. It's not for us. It's for Him. This year isn't for you. It's for Him. Entering into a new year is about Jesus Christ. It's so that you might praise and honor and adore Christ more. It's so that you might devote yourself more fully to the church of Christ. It's so that you might serve the cause of Christ more in the world. It's so that you can render a greater level of personal submission and obedience to Christ this year than ever before. It's not so that things can just merely stay the same, but there's always a progress and advancement. Though time rolls on as the same, the advance of redemption continues to grow and expand as always. Have you thought about that? Paul says, that we're to be making the best use of the time because the days are evil. The best use. What could possibly be a better use of the time allotted to us in a new year than to more vehemently, more diligently, more intentionally give ourselves to growing in grace in order that we might glorify God in Christ? You see, when we grow in grace, that doesn't glorify us. That glorifies Him. That's what He's doing. What could be a better use of the time? Paul didn't say making a good use, making a decent use, making a relatively all things considered a good use. No, making the best use. What is the best use of the time that God has given us? You and I are still here because more sanctification needs to take place. We're still here because more edification needs to take place through us to other people. We're still here because there are people who need to hear the gospel from your mouth. That's why we're here. You see, the Noahic covenant is about Christ. But not just getting a baby into the world, but for the whole plan of redemption by which Christ is glorified. Time marches on for Christ. You exist not for yourself, but for Christ. It's Him. To make the best use of the time. Peter, speaking of the end of all things, says in 2 Peter 3, verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish. And at peace. In verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory. Both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So here we are in 2024. We are still waiting for the end of all things. We're waiting for these things. What are we supposed to be doing? What do we do this year? Well, Peter would say, Be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. 
and grow or increase in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, we're already a weekend of the new year. You say, well, we're, we're, we're late, aren't we? Well, no, there was a, the year started on Monday, so we're not late. This is the first, but we've, we're already a weekend. How many of you, I wonder, have been more diligent this week to be found by God without spot or blemish than you were last year? How many of you spent time combing through your minds and your hearts and your lives looking for any spores of sin that might be left over from 2023? If we thought we saw a, a spore of black mold, some of you would begin to hyperventilate. You say, no, that's just a bug. Well, it looked like black mold and I couldn't breathe. But for some reason, we can just carry on with sin all the time. Sin, 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 sin. And we don't even notice it. What have you done? He says, be diligent to be found without spot or blemish. That means find the spots, find the blemishes, and be diligent to get them out. How many of you have taken new or more advanced steps to grow in grace? How many are taking steps to grow in the knowledge of Christ? As you've been given a week. Or how many of you have just carried on like normal? Just a regular week. I gotta learn to write fours instead of threes on my my checks or my schoolwork or whatever it is. But other than that, things have have just carried on. How many of you have just carried on like normal? I can hear the objection already. Oh, but it's just been so busy. People have been sick. This this happened and and that happened. I, I really just haven't had a chance to sit down and think about this kind of stuff. Listen, if you're waiting for things to calm down before you can iron out the basic details of Christian life, it's not going to happen. It won't happen. If you're waiting for sickness to be eradicated before you can put into place steps, uh, daily, regular disciplines, it's not going to happen. A part of the common grace covenant that God made with Noah is that people are going to get sick. If you're waiting for money to be in excess in your bank account before you can calm down and begin to iron out the most basic details of walking with the Lord, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. You say, well, what if I get rich? Even then, it won't happen because it's not happening now. Ladies, If you're waiting for the babies to stop crying and for the children to stop needing to be fed or for the laundry to stop piling up before you can nail down basic spiritual disciplines like reading and prayer and meditation and spiritual evaluation, you'll never do it. It's not going to happen. Men, if you're waiting for the work around the house or at your job to slow down or calm down or, or whatever it might be before you can truly give yourself to lovingly lead your wife and children in spiritual things or nail down these basic spiritual disciplines, if you're waiting for all of that to happen, you say, well, when, when, this, when this calms down, then we'll get things in order. It's not going to happen. You won't do it. You won't do it. All of these things that we use as excuses for why we aren't doing or why we aren't able to do what God has commanded, we could put all of these under one word. Life. It's just life. Well, so-and-so's been sick. Life. So-and-so's crying. Life. The bills are late. Life. Work's been hard. Life. Everybody's busy. Everybody's got work to do. Everybody's got struggles that they have to deal with. What you're saying is, when life is over, then I'll nail down my basic baby steps for Christianity. It's not going to happen. Being a Christian means doing those things through life, in the midst of difficulty. But these things are just the basic attendance of life on this fallen planet after the fall. This is the Noahic covenant we're living under. It is the covenant of Ecclesiastes. It is the covenant of Job, where the righteous sometimes flourish and sometimes suffer. That's where we live. The basic attendance of life on this planet after the fall. 
Or there is another option. They are things that you have added to your life that God has not commanded. We, we often get a case of, I just got us. Well, I haven't been able to do this. I just got to, well, I just got to, well, I'll get to that, but I just got to, I just got to do this. Well, I just got to get that. Look, we got one book of just got us. This is all we have is just got us. We add to it. That's called legalism. We add to it. Well, the kids just got to have this, and the kids just got to do that, and I just got to get to this. We add all of these laws, the I just got us, doctrines, teaches doctrines, the commandments of men. I just got to, I'm, I'm required, I'm, I'm under compulsion to do this thing. We add things that God has not commanded, and then we say, well, I just don't have time to do this, this, and this, and this, and this. That's not God's fault. That's your fault. We do that. So it's either just regular life. I'm not saying that people don't get sick, that there aren't struggles. It's either just that, that's just regular life, or things that we have added. And again, the burden falls upon us. We typically think that when things slow down, then we'll be ready to devote ourselves to the things of the Lord. Then we'll make our existence on this planet about Him and not ourselves. When stuff slows down, when it gets a little easier, it's as easy as it's ever going to be, y'all. Life is only going to get more hectic, more busy, more difficult as time goes by. And the reality is, these types of things, basic spiritual disciplines, for most of you, they should have been nailed down a long time ago. And we're still trying to figure out how to get into these baby steps in place. But life's not going to get easier. That, that can't be the reason why we don't do what God's commanded. It's just too busy. It's too hard. Something came up. Something this. Something that. You should have had these things ironed out long before that. And most of you have learned this past year that the passing of time and the expansion of family and the growth of responsibilities and duties does not make spiritual devotion, spiritual disciplines easier. It doesn't. Again, these things should have been settled before. If I've said it to one of the ladies here, I've said it to almost all of you. When your, baby, your, your belly starts coming out here like this, and I say, how's, how's your time in the Word? Well, I'm still trying to you know, get a routine down. And I say, listen, when that baby comes, it's going to disrupt everything. Get that settled first. Get it settled. And the baby comes, and what happens? How's your time in the Word? Well, the baby's just... Not sleeping. I'm up all night. It's hard to wake up, etc., etc. You know it to be true. Same for men with jobs and work. You better get that stuff nailed down. It's not going to get easier. You don't advance to the point. Most of us are not going to advance to the point where instead of working 40 hours, we're working five hours a week. All of a sudden, I've got all this free time. And again, the fact of the matter is, if you can't do it when you're working 40 hours, you really won't do it when you're working five hours. Because you've already learned to build your world around yourself. But we learn. Surely we've learned. Life ain't getting easier. It's getting busier. It's getting more hectic. More things are cast into the mix. More children. More needs. More. 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 It doesn't get easier. If you're waiting on it to get easier, you'll never do it. We as Christians do not wait for life to simplify before we're able to give ourselves to the basic and progressive disciplines of the Christian life. That's not how we function. Rather, we start by laying those foundations in stone so that when life gets busy, we've got something like a north star, something to recalibrate us to a bearing so that we can keep our navigation straight through the difficulties. No, you don't wait till after you get in the ocean to figure out which direction you're headed. You nail that down first, then you start going through the storms. We have to have that. We have to have a rock to which we can cling through all the ebbs and flows of life. And you say, well, Christ is my rock. Christ is not your rock if you're not re in reading and prayer every day. You might think he is, but how, how do we actually practically cling to a man we can't see or touch? His word. We come to Him and we talk to Him in prayer. And we have Him talk to us through His Word. And we trust and we lean upon what He said. That's what it means to cling. It's not just, well, Jesus knows what's going on. That's true. But you, if you're not in His Word, you don't know Him. 
We have to have that to get us through what we call life. So some of you might need to start out 24 by just admitting, hey, I should have done this a long time ago. That's step number New Year's resolution. I should have done this a long time ago. I'm just going to be honest. I failed. I dropped the ball. Here's the good news. God made a covenant with Noah. God made a covenant. God's covenant with Noah means that thus far, life goes on. We're still here. Which means there's opportunity for growth, for change. And God's covenant with us in Christ means there's forgiveness for sins and powerful grace to grow. It's not your own strength that you have to grow in. God says, I'll give you strength. I'll be your strength to grow. That's the good news. God made a covenant. We're still here and we still have a Savior. There's forgiveness and there's power. So let me conclude with some brief points to aim us all in the right direction for the year. First, for the younger children. By younger children, I mean you're around that age where I would have to say, can you read yet? That's what I mean by younger children. And you would say, yeah. Some of you are past that age. I don't, I don't have to ask you, can you read? Younger children, can you read? If you say, yeah, I can read. Some of you, I know you can because I watch you sing from the hymnal and I watch you read the lyrics on the screen. Yeah. I know you can read. Get your mom and dad. If you haven't already this year, get your mom and dad to help you set a good time every morning to sit down and read the Bible. Just sit and read. And ask your parents, will you help me to, to keep this time, to guard this time every day, to read the Scriptures? Because if you can get that settled while you're young, you won't be like the rest of the older ones saying, well, I just can't get it figured out. I just can't do it. I just can't do it. You'll say, that's a breeze. I settled that when I was a child. Get it settled while you're young. If you can read, then say, Mom, Dad, what's a good time for me to get up and to read? And will you make sure, Mom and Dad, that I, when I walk out of my bedroom, you don't say, get to this and this and this and this. Mom and Dad, you say, first thing you do, get in the Word. Well, they don't understand. You don't understand most of what you read either. Get in the Word. Read it. Just begin to read it. Set that most basic habit of reading. And if you're able... Take what you've read and pray about it. Try to learn something and just pray. It might be simple. All right, for the older young people. So here, I don't have to ask you, do you know how to read? Because you can read. We all know you can read. You're of that age. All the way up until you're not married. Older, young people. If you haven't already, this year, establish a set time, place, and plan for reading the Scriptures every day. Learn the discipline of early rising. Get up early. See, the Bible doesn't say I have to get up early. You ain't read it, and that's why you think that. I've, I've thought about preaching a sermon about getting up early. Just do a word study. Early, morning, sunrise. Look in the Bible. Look at history. All of the godly from the beginning until now, all of the godly said, I've got to start before everybody else. I've got to get up early. I don't want to take a step. I don't want to take a bite of food. I don't want to get on the road without being with my Lord first. Learn that discipline while you're young. Again, include prayer in that time. And this year, perhaps if you haven't already, begin the habit of being intentional and detailed in your prayers. While you're young, listen, God forgive me of my sins. That's not a, that's not a prayer of confession. Lord help, Lord help somebody. Lord help the church. Lord be with them. Those are not prayers. I don't, I don't know what that means. If you told me to be with somebody, I don't really understand what that means. Learn how to be detailed. What are you asking God to do? Learn that habit of being intentional and detailed in your prayers. And what's that going to require? It's going to go back to the first one. You're going to have to learn the Scriptures. What does it mean to cling to Christ? What does it mean for the Lord to be with somebody, to draw near with His strengthening power, to help them in their heart and their, their mind and their heart to grow in grace, to be strong through whatever trial they're enduring through? 
What does it mean? Well, I have to know the scriptures to know what that means. But learn how to be detailed in your prayers. Another one for the, the older young people. And again, I'm, I'm assuming here that you're, you're professing to be a Christian. But see if you can focus in on one area of sin and fight that sin. If, if, all we, if, if, if we go about life like this, well, I, I'm, I've just got a lot of sins. Okay, that, that's enough to put all of us on our backs for the rest of our life. You can't fight every sin every day in the way that you should. That, that will cripple you. What is, start with one. What is one sin that needs to be dealt with? Take that sin to the Scriptures. Take that sin to the Lord and begin to fight that sin in the power of the Holy Spirit. I think it's dangerous if I were to come to a Christian, a professing Christian, and say, what sins are you fighting or what sin have you been able to mortify lately? If you can't name one, I'm worried because our life is to be a life of repentance, of ongoing war with sin. So locate something like that. Make that an area of focus. Another one for the young people. Read theological books this year. Expand your capacity for study and thought. Pick a particular theological subject or pick a book of the Bible that you're going to study in more detail and maybe read along with a commentary. Books about Christ are always important. Find a stack of books just about Christ and just begin to work through them. Biographies, Christian biographies and historical church history books. And and again, I I, I hear the objection, well, I'm just going to read my Bible. Well, if you read it long enough, you'll find out the Bible says you need to be reading other books and learning from other men and learning history and reading biographies. The Bible teaches those things. So get something and expand your appetite and your mental capacity and your heart's capacity to study and to worship. Paul says that if you aren't married... And you should be anxious about the things of the Lord. So could it be said of you if you're not married? So question number one, am I married? No. Okay, then. Can it be said of you if if somebody could read your heart, they could read your mind, they could read your habits, because God can, would they say, this person is is really anxious about the things of the Lord? What's burning on them? What, what What is the... The anxiety in them is the things of the Lord. Can that be said? If not, then it ought to be. What needs to happen to make that truth, to make that reality for you? For the men, all of the above, plus, are there any areas of leadership where you need to grow in your home? Ask your wife. Are there any areas of, of, of biblical spiritual leadership where I need to grow? Hear what she says and act upon it. Is there something new or helpful that you could do this year with or for your wife and your children to help them grow? Find out what that is and set yourself to it. Men, are you too busy? Fix it. Fix it. God has laid on no man's plate more than he can carry and also be obedient. So if you're too busy, fix it. Or is there some area of sin that you need to address with your wife or your children or all together in order to establish a more Christ-honoring home? Men, is there, is, does there need to be that time where you say, all right, everybody sit down, we're going to talk. Dad has failed, dad has sinned. Dad has not led properly. Here's what we have been doing. Here's what the Word of God says about this. We're changing. Can you hear all the fussing? And then, what about this? And well, we'll we'll deal with that. But we're changing. Do that. Build a Christ-honoring home. Don't let those those same nagging things that went through last year. That you say, I don't think we ought to be doing that. I just don't know if we. It's just not helping anything. It's not helping. It's not bringing us closer together. It's not helping us love Christ more. But we just got to keep doing because everybody will be mad if we don't. No. Make 2024 the year that you cut that stuff out. For the women, for the women, we appreciate y'all. Next, as a church, I'm just kidding. For the women, um, I don't think it's ever not expedient to read Proverbs 31 and just think about that woman. Notice how 
focused she is on other people, especially her home. When you read that section in Proverbs 31, you can't help but picture that this or, or realize, think that this woman is it doesn't even it doesn't say it, but she just seems delightful. She seems glad. She seems happy to be doing the things that she's doing. And especially in being so selfish. Helping, being focused on others, your children, your husband, your family, your household, doing all of that and then fussing and nagging and complaining about it, that's not godly. It doesn't say that in Proverbs 31. She did all these things and then she fussed about it all the time and was miserable to her, in her own life and everybody around her was miserable too. That's not godliness. Seek to delight in what God has given you to do. So study that and think through that. These are just suggestions. Evaluate your schedule. Could you be more intentional with any of your time? And again, I would say for the women, I'm thinking especially wives, mothers, is there some sin that needs to be addressed in your household, maybe in your husband or in your children? Some in our circles think, think that it's never a woman's, a wife's place to bring up any sin in her husband or address. I don't think that's true. I think our wives are given to us to be a, a help, meat for us. And what, what is most meat for me, suitable for me many times, is for my sin to be pointed out that I can't see. And so you wives, it might be important for you in a, in a godly and honoring way to say, Hey, honey, we need to talk. You're acting like a numbskull and you got to quit. This is sinful. It's harmful. It's hurting. And we need to deal with it. Or with your children. Hey, kids, these are things that I've been seeing. We've got we to gotta do better this year. We've got to make some progress. As a church... We read in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Well, the day is one year closer, which means we ought to be doing these things all the more, right? Not less, but more. So as a church, we need to ask ourselves these questions. What can we be doing to love one another better, to encourage one another better and more? How can we as a church be more saturated in the Scriptures? Are we ready this year to be more devoted to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers? Are there ways that we can be more evangelistic as a church? These are questions that we can use to Prepare ourselves to glorify God through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus in 2024, in the upcoming year. Now, it may very well be that some of you just need to stop making excuses for why you aren't growing. Why 2024 will be the same as 2023, will be the same as 2022. Stop making excuses and just admit it's because you're not a Christian. You like to make the profession. You like the people. You're scared to death to face the reality of eternal hell. But nothing in you is actually clamoring to take the kingdom of heaven by storm. To take it by force. Nothing in you. For you it's just, I just got to get through another day. You're not a Christian. If this is you, you're not a Christian. And I can't understand why you would want to trade eternity with God for an ongoing charade before people. As, as James would ask, what profit is it? What are you getting? What, what, are you, what do you win? The praise of men? At the cost of eternity? Jesus said, if you love me, You'll keep my commandments. And the reason that you don't keep his commandments is because you don't love him. You might love the idea of Christianity, but you don't love Jesus Christ. It would be excellent to start out 2024 by just admitting, look, I'm not a Christian. The Bible says, call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. But you can't do that until you're able to admit, I'm not a Christian. 
Some of you need to do that. Others of you have fallen into this cycle of excuse making. And again, I think if we're honest, pretty much every excuse that we will make comes down to time. It comes down to why, why are we not doing what we ought to do? It boils down to we think there's not enough time in the day to do all that we want to do in addition to what God has commanded us to do. And we say things like, well, I, I just it's just hard for me to find time, find time, find time, find time. You don't find time. God's already given you all your time. It's right there in front of you. You make time. You make it. So you need to ask the Lord for eyes to see and grace to act and obedience to Him. Everybody, maybe you've never noticed this before, everybody has the same amount of time every day. Nobody gets more than anybody else. But you've got to stop making that excuse. And there are others of you here, and maybe this is the majority of you, who are already chasing the Lord harder than ever. To you, I would say, keep it up. Keep it up. My beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Amen. Knowing, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So let's pray and let's ask the Lord for grace to help us.